Morning, everybody. Mentors have always played a really big role in my life. I had the privilege of growing up at a large church. We had a large youth group, and Sundays was leadership training. But over the first five years of that leadership training, I was involved in the large group. But in grade 12, my youth pastor pulled me aside and said, I want to work with you. I want to disciple you one-on-one so that you can do what James says. You not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I thought, wow, this is a, a big youth ministry. I'd happily meet with you once a week. But he was tough. He put me to work, he would say to me, who are your four closest friends in high school? I want you to take them out for Slurpees or for lunch, and I want you to share the gospel with them. And he kind of created within me this desire to grow closer to Jesus and love one another who God has placed right in front of my, in me. And so slowly over my life, this started to happen more and more. When I was in Bible college, throughout all of my 20s, I had a tremendous mentor. And I would be mentored by him when it came to life and ministry. How do I find a good job? How do I buy my first house? What does it look like to have a good relationship with the lead pastor and the board and to start great ministries? Last week, Darren DeGraff preached, and he's somebody who's been speaking into my life. And if you want a mentor who's mean, you need someone like Darren DeGraff. He would just give me a kick in the pants to get moving forward. And maybe for you, you're thinking, I have somebody in my life who does that, or maybe you do it for other people. But some of us have mentors that we've never even met before. They're great authors that are um, serving around the world, and you love reading their books. You enjoy listening to their podcasts, or they have YouTube videos that you can follow along. And whatever you do for work or whatever you do for life, you recognize these people can speak into what's taking place. Because we all have questions. We wonder, what school should we go to? What education should we get? How do we rent our first house? How do we buy our first house? How do we look for that right person? And when it comes to spending the rest of our life with them, do we introduce them to our friends and our mentors and say, what do you think of this individual? How do you raise young kids? How do you raise teenagers? How do you raise kids and grandkids of your own? And you begin to realize that there's something going on and to have somebody speak into your life. You might be looking at the uh, screen behind me and saying, the ordinary, what do you do with something like that? That's not that big, sexy sermon series title, but it's real life. If you've already read the pastor's page coming in, you, I'm gonna repeat myself, but you recognize it. That when you go somewhere on holidays, when you have all the family gathered together around Thanksgiving, that's not real life. Real life is taking kids to sports practice. Real life is deciding what you're gonna eat on a Tuesday night in the middle of November and asking that same question over and over again for the rest of eternity. The Old Testament is full of incredible stories. We see the beginning of the nation of Israel, which we looked at in Genesis over the summer. But then you also realize that there's something beautiful right in the middle of the Old Testament, and it's called the wisdom literature. Depending on how you define it, it's either three books or five books long. Everybody puts Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Some people add Song of Solomon and Psalms as well. We're going to be looking at four of those books. We're going to leave Psalms to the spring, but right now we're going to be looking at Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job. And there's something beautiful that takes place in here. For the nation of Israel, um, constantly we're meeting their kings, we're meeting their people, we're seeing how the nation listens to God or doesn't listen to God and the blessings or the fallout that happens from that. But, But what happens with the wisdom literature is it's written for individuals. It's written for the ordinary. It's written to tell you how do you do life at work, at home, and at play. And so as we overview the four books of the wisdom literature today, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the church family. Thank you for the joy it was to preach through generous worship and Genesis over the summer. But now as we spend the next seven weeks looking at what it means to live life in the ordinary, 
God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up and we would see something that maybe we've never seen, never seen before. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. If you were around last year, we went through Exodus at light speed, going through about four or five chapters a week, and I was meeting with pastors David and Pastor Joel, and I said to them, guys, I'm gonna preach all four books of the wisdom literature in one sermon, and they said, good luck with that. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna give you full, intense overviews of all four books. I'm gonna give you two different perspectives of what's taking place and hope that it will impact you as you read the wisdom literature and prepare you for the next few weeks. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to 1 Kings chapter three. 1 Kings chapter three. If you're new to church, welcome. There should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, you can download the app to your phone as well. Uh, if you don't know where 1 Kings is, thankfully there's a table of contents and you know, the big numbers are the chapter numbers small numbers of the verse numbers. But a little bit of background before we get there. When we arrive in 1 Samuel, the Israel is calling out for a king. And we're introduced to God who's um, blessing Samuel. Kelsey mentioned that just a couple minutes ago during her child dedication. And Samuel, um, with God's blessing, anoints King Saul. 1 Samuel is all about King Saul. 2 Samuel is about his successor, King David. When we arrive at the beginning of 1 Kings, David is now an old man. Um, he has led his nation well, but he hasn't really led his family well. He's told Solomon that he will be his successor. His mom Bathsheba also knows Solomon will be the third king of Israel, but not other, no other people know that. And so one of the brothers, a man by the name of Adonijah, says, I'm going to be king of Israel. I'm going to take over this nation. I'm going to lead this nation the way it should have been led, much better than my dad could ever have done it. This is what we read, pardon me, the first part of our outline this morning is the wisdom of Solomon. This is what we read in 1 Kings chapter one. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoholeth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah who were royal officials. But listen to this. He did not invite Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the priest, or the special guard, or his brother Solomon. So let me put that into perspective, what's taking place here. And before I share this illustration, please know we do not have a pastor of evangelism. So I have the privilege of being the lead pastor, and unfortunately, I get hit by a bus and can no longer be the pastor here. And so the board executive and the lead team get together and they say, what are we going to do? What are the next few months going to look like as we start a search plan and find a new lead pastor? But while this is going on, the pastor of evangelism thinks, this is my chance. Dave doesn't know how to lead this place, but I do, and this is gonna be great. And so he finds a board member that's rather sensitive to his call. He finds a couple staff members that he knows will support him, and he calls a special congregational meeting, but doesn't let the board know and doesn't let all of the staff know. And at this special congregational meeting, he goes, just so you guys know, I'm the brand new lead pastor of Ellerslie. And you go, oh, okay, great, we like the pastor of evangelism. He seems like a good guy. But then the board chair finds out and goes, that is not the plan. And then our lead team, uh, Pastor Russ and Joel and Kelsey, they find out that is not the plan. The plan is that Joel would take over and at least oversee during the meantime. And so you could imagine that Joel would be crying out to God, God, give me wisdom. The board is divided. The staff is divided. The congregation is divided. And here's where Solomon finds himself. In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is now anointed king. 
but there's big infighting because one of his brothers wants to be king. There's confusion among the priests and the prophets. Well, who's king? Is it Adonijah or is it Solomon? There's confusion among the nation of Israel. Who are we supposed to be following? Who are we supposed to be serving? And so when we arrive in 1 Kings chapter 3, we have Solomon crying out to God. This is chapter 3, picking up at verse 5. If you enjoy following along word for word, I preach from the ESV. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your, your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go in or come out, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I might discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, because you have asked this, have not asked for long life, for riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been born before, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also that which you have not asked for both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. If you're familiar with the Bible, um, the scripture goes on to tell about the incredibly wise things Solomon was doing. And that people from all over the world were coming to see what was taking place. And you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so this is going to be about Solomon's wisdom and eventually we'll get to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. But I want to do something different. I want you to see the different perspectives by which the wisdom literature was written. And for that to take place, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. So in the opening chapters of Scripture, God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He creates humanity, and Adam and Eve have the privilege of walking with God. And we read in chapter 2, God saying this, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now think about how good the Garden of Eden is. There is no sin Adam and Eve are living in sinless perfection and God just gives them one command. He says, you can eat of anything you want except that tree. That one tree you can't eat. Everything else is okay. As one of my favorite podcasters says, don't try to be happier than happy. In Genesis chapter three, a snake comes slithering up and this is Satan. And he looks at Eve and he says, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And for Eve, she thinks to herself, this is great. Now I have the opportunity to finally be wise, to finally understand. We read this in the very next verse. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. The rest of chapter three tells about the curse that came upon humanity, upon the world, 
and upon the animals as well. The snake was cursed that he has to slither along his ground. The um, woman was cursed that she was gonna be in pain during childbearing. The uh, world was cursed and that it would be difficult for men to toil and to labor. Now you might be hearing this and going, Dave, you just talked and set up the wisdom literature. What on earth does Genesis two and three have to do with that? Everything. And it's amazing. For Adam and Eve, they sought wisdom of their own For Solomon, he sought God's wisdom. For Adam and Eve, they brought on pain, on torture, destruction on the world. For Solomon, he brought on plenty, abundance, and life. We read in 1 Kings chapter 3 that Solomon was asking for wisdom. Check out what happens the very next chapter. Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan, even to Beersheba. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon is reversing the curse. Adam and Eve lost the Garden of Eden and lost the Tree of Life, but because Solomon is depending on the wisdom of God, he gives not just his royalty, but all the entire nation their own Tree of Life and the garden and the vineyard for which they can eat from. It's stunningly beautiful. Reverse of the curse. So let's go through the three books that Solomon wrote. um, Proverbs chapter one, verses one to seven is kind of the opening, the introduction to the book of Proverbs. What does it mean to be a man of wisdom? And he finishes it off by saying this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. And you might think, okay, well, that's neat, but where is the curse being reversed? Check out what happens in chapter three. She, Lady Wisdom, is what? a tree of life to those who embrace her, to those who lay hold of her, will be blessed. Now you might think, oh Dave, you just cherry pick to make it something really interesting. Not true. In chapter 11, in chapter 13, in chapter 15, over and over again, wisdom is the tree of life and a blessing to everybody who follows. Solomon recognized that true wisdom comes from God. But Solomon also realizes that occasionally wisdom can disappoint. Once we finish Proverbs, we get into the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book starts like this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless, utterly meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? But it's also pointing back to the garden. Look at these two verses side by side. We have Ecclesiastes 1, 2 to 3 right beside the curse in Genesis 3, 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Even we, though we might be following the wisdom of God the best we know how, sometimes it doesn't work out the way we expect it to. How many of us have um, sought God's wisdom, have talked to our parents, talked to our good friends and said, this is the house we're going to buy and it's a blessing to you until mortgage rates triple. And your monthly costs go up five, six, seven, nine hundred dollars and you go, I don't know if I can pay for this anymore. How many of you new Canadians were back in your country that you were born in and you're following God, you're going to church, you're living a good godly life and you think, I can't live here anymore. It's too dangerous, it's too scary. I don't know if this is the place where God wants me to be. And so you fly over the pond and suddenly you arrive here in Canada. How many of us have read that proverb that says, raise the child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And you're going, God, I did. I raised my kids the best I know how, but two of them aren't following God anymore. What do I do? 
Solomon recognizes this. Solomon also recognizes that if we're to have a a wonderful life, it might involve having a spouse to come with us. And he finds in Song of Solomon, chapter eight, set me as a seal upon your hearts, as a seal upon your love. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave, it flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. In scripture we have something that's called uh, double fulfillment. And so you might have a prophecy that's fulfilled within the next few years or the next decade or so, but also a prophecy that's fulfilled many years later. And as Solomon is writing about this beautiful love of a husband laying down his life for his spouse, he's also pointing ahead to a greater love, the love of Jesus himself who loves the church, his bride so deeply that he will lay his life down for that. And so as we go through Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, we see this renewal of what's taking place. The Song of Solomon, the entire thing takes place in a garden so that one day we might be able to enjoy the fruit of the tree that God has to offer for us. That's one perspective, the wisdom of Solomon. There's a second perspective. There's a wisdom for life that's taking place. This time I'll include Joel, um, Job, pardon me. Uh, this next thing I'm about to share with you I found fascinating. Watch this. Proverbs gives teenagers practical wisdom. Song of Solomon is for those young adults, those 20-somethings, and it's about marriage and relationships. Ecclesiastes is the middle-aged man looking about life's random nature, and the book of Job is the wise old sage who sees blessings through all of life, whether it's the highs or the lows, and there's something beautiful that's taking place here. Now, I'm again gonna walk you through this so you get to see all the connections between the books because it is incredible. But before I do that, that doesn't mean only teenagers read Proverbs and only young adults read Song of Solomon or anything like that. Uh, I would be classified as middle age at this time in my life. (laughs) But my wife told me a couple weeks ago, Dave, you haven't taken me on a date in a few months. And so I need to read Song of Solomon and I need to recognize that there's something about pursuing my wife and chasing after her. And I think some of our church family is doing that really well because I just saw a bunch of kids on this platform. (laughs) But there's something else happening here as well. You might consider yourself young, but do you read the book of Job? Do you see that there's beauty even in the midst of suffering that God is in control of everything that is taking place in your life? And no matter how old we are, we look at the book of Proverbs and recognize something special is there because it's wisdom for all ages. So let's go back to Proverbs. I mentioned just a few minutes ago that Proverbs chapter one to seven is kind of the introduction to the book and it begins, uh, it says to us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So the body of the book actually begins in chapter one, verse eight, and here's what we read. Hear my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter two, verse one, my son, Receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. In chapter three, verse one, four, verse one, five, verse one, six, verse one, seven, verse one, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. In fact, the Proverbs is 31 chapters long, just shy of 50 times my son is written. Because it's a book about instruction for young men and women. How do we live our lives? How do we seek out new jobs? What does sexuality look like as a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to work hard in life, at work, at home, and at play? What does that look like? And then how does the book of Proverbs end? Does anyone remember? 
the Proverbs 31 woman. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. And then what's the next stage of life? The Song of Solomon. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it desires. In fact, this is fascinating. In Jewish tradition, young men are not allowed to read the Song of Solomon. They are not allowed to read it until they either are of marriage age or are they're about to get married because it's a very erotic love poem. And that's why Joel is going to preach it, not me. <laughs> there's something beautiful and special that's taking place here. Now, there's two views of the Song of Solomon. One is that the view is um, it's a love poem. The other view is that it's a picture, an analogy of God chasing after us. I think both are true. I think first and foremost, it is a love poem. It shows us something beautiful about what it means to pursue somebody else. But I think it also points to the greatest love story of all time where Jesus himself is pursuing humanity and coming after us. In chapter, uh, uh, pardon me, at the end of Song of Solomon, we read this. This is the very last verse. Come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. The last verse of the book is a pursuing. It's an invitation to come and join. We don't know what happens. Enter the middle-aged critic. We don't know if he met a girl or he didn't meet a girl, but he just cries out, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does it mean? What can a man gain from his labor at which he toils under the sun? Here's a man who needs the spice-laden mountain, right? Something is taking place. It's this middle-aged critic who recognizes that things aren't working out the way he expects them to. He realizes that in Proverbs, we have this idea of this idealism that takes place. But in Ecclesiastes, things don't always work out we expect them to. Why is it that the wicked sometimes prosper and the righteous sometimes suffer? Meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And so we arrive at the end of the book. But before we get there, one rabbi says something I think worth noting. Whoever has dreamed great dreams in his youth and has seen the vision flee, or has loved and lost, or has beaten barehanded at the fortress of injustice, come back bleeding and broken. He passes the teacher's door and tarried a while beneath the shadow of his roof. But how does Ecclesiastes end? Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He's saying life is meaningless unless we invite Jesus to be a part of it. Unless we invite Jesus to be a part of our work. Unless we invite Jesus to be a part of our marriage relationships. Unless we invite Jesus to be a part of our play. Life is meaningless and is not worth living. And then we arrive at Job, this wise old sage. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Job, in the first 30 verses, he loses everything. His kids are killed. His wealth stolen or destroyed. His health taken away from him. His wife is yelling at him. It's miserable. We read in Job chapter one, at this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God 
with wrongdoing. Wisdom for life. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Job, is the author of scripture, God himself, saying, we live ordinary lives. We have ordinary jobs. We have ordinary homes. We have ordinary friends. We have ordinary relationships. What do we do to bring God in so that we're not seeking wisdom from ourselves? I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up and join me on the platform. My prayer for you over the last week has been that we would see these two different perspectives of the wisdom literature and be drawn in. That when we're reading through the wisdom literature, we would see the garden and how beautiful it is and the wisdom of Solomon, but that we would also see wisdom for life. That Proverbs is written to those teenagers, that Song of Solomon is written to young adults, that Ecclesiastes is written to the middle age, that Job written to those who are older. But there's something else that's taken here as well. Now, perhaps you're here this morning and you might be familiar with that opening chapter from James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Over the last three months, we've been working hard at developing a post-service prayer ministry. And maybe you're thinking, God, I need wisdom because I don't know what to do at work right now. I don't know how to move my relationship forward. I don't know what to do as mortgage rates skyrocket. I don't know how to lead my, my family more effectively. We would love for you to come forward. And whether you're doing that during the closing couple of songs or whether you do that after the um, service, there's gonna be people at the front who would love to pray with you. Second thing. As we wrapped up generous worship, we talked about Bible reading and prayer and the um, engagement of the spiritual practices. If you don't have a Bible reading plan right now, consider reading through the wisdom literature. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. You could read one chapter a day throughout this whole sermon series. Between Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, it's 51 chapters long. Again, we're doing this for seven weeks. You could read one chapter every single day to engage in what God is saying to you and recognizing that this is wisdom from God because there's something beautiful that's taking place. As we read the wisdom literature, we recognize that it's ultimately pointing us to the wisdom of God who is personified in Jesus Christ himself. We see the Song of Solomon and we are reminded that there is no greater love than what Jesus has for us that he laid down his life for us so that we might be taken into his house. It is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes in which God says nothing is worth doing unless Jesus is deeply a part of it. It's the wisdom of the book of Job and that whether Job knows what took place or not, he didn't. He can trust in God who knows all things. This is the wisdom literature. And this is anything but ordinary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom literature. Thank you for the words of Solomon, for Job, and for those who helped fill out the rest of Proverbs and the Psalms. And God, as we read this, may we desire your wisdom, not the wisdom we find on our own, but a wisdom from God who helps us at work, at home, and at play to do great things for your glory. I pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.